You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, October 18th, 2023. Later in the program, Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. Today, we continue looking into Indiana's legislation that pertains to education. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, better beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment with host and producer Richard Fish. Up next to Better Beware, your weekly consumer watchdog segment on WFHB. We turn to host and producer Richard Fish for more. beware. Here's your consumer watchdog from WFHB Community Radio with the latest information and helpful hints designed to keep your head out of the clouds, your feet on the ground, and your money in your pocket. I've been doing some traveling lately, a couple of thousand miles in my car, and that meant I had to buy gas several times in various places. I was using my credit card to keep track of my expenses, and I always have a little bump of worry about finding a gas pump that's got a credit card reader installed. These things have been around for a while, and if your card goes into a slot with an illegal reader attached, the reader reads the magnetic strip along with the gas pump and sends the information to a crook. And then some con artist is going to be able to run up all kinds of charges on your card. The early models are easy to spot. They fit over the credit card slot, and you can see something else has been added. One of the ways the credit card companies and the gas stations have been fighting this ripoff is the credit cards with a chip embedded in them. Mine are like that. You push the card in the slot and it locks while the chip is accessed and unlocks when the card is approved. It doesn't use the magnetic stripe at all. Well, some scammers have figured out how to get around that by installing a card reader device in the wires connecting the chip card circuit inside the pump itself. But that means opening the pump and then closing it up again, and that's risky. No legitimate customer ever opens up a gas pump after all. Even if they're not spotted in the act, surveillance video can catch them later. So the next step in defending the gas pumps is the tap-to-pay card reader. That's where you don't put your card in a slot at all, just tap it on a little screen on the front of the pump. I used one of those three times on my recent trip, and they worked fine. 
That method uses an encoded radio signal that's a whole lot harder for the thieves to read and a one-time-only security code the crooks can't know. But guess what? The scammers have now found a way to defeat this system. They simply drill a little hole into the contactless payment screen. That disables the tap-to-pay circuit, and the gas pump automatically defaults back to the other methods. So if you get gas at a contactless card reader pump, but the tap-to-pay function doesn't work, watch out. In that case, or if you see a little hole in the tap-to-pay screen, Go tell the attendant immediately. The pump should be shut off and inspected for illegal card readers. And you should use another pump, or maybe even go to another gas station. I've been checking my credit card accounts and haven't found any problems. Whenever you're flashing your credit card around the country, you do the same. I'm Richard Fish for WFHB News and Public Affairs. Better Beware comes to you from WFHB Bloomington, Indiana. Find all our episodes at WFHB.org. If you can help put the kibosh on a con, email beware at WFHB.org. Remember, swindlers never give a sucker an even break. This is Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. We are looking into Indiana's legislation that pertains to education. This week, we look into House Enrolled Act 1608. During the 2023 legislative session, the Indiana State House passed a swath of bills that advocates are calling a slate of hate. According to the American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana, this year, Indiana lawmakers introduced a record number of bills targeting LGBTQ plus Hoosiers. This included a don't say gay bill that forces teachers to out students, a banning of essential medical care for trans youth, and a bill that censors books in schools related to LGBTQ plus topics, all of which were signed into law. Today, WFHB News focuses on House Enrolled Act 1608, titled Education Matters. This law prohibits any person, entity, or vendor working in school from providing instruction on human sexuality for grades K through 8. It also requires schools to notify parents or guardians in writing when their child requests to change their name, title, pronouns, or other identifying terms if the student is not an emancipated minor. We spoke with the executive director of the ACLU, Jane Henniger, about the litigation the ACLU has filed against the state of Indiana for the slate of hate. So all of our litigation um, against these laws and um, all kinds of laws um, represent real people who've been directly impacted by the laws. So the legislation that would um, prevent teachers in K through 3 classrooms talking about human sexuality would represent a a real-life teacher who um, is is concerned about how that would impact her teaching and her ability to figure out, can I I read and Tango Makes 3 to my class? Um, without getting in trouble and those kinds of questions. How do I respond to questions from kids? Can I, you know, 
so I have to be constantly worried about um, what I say um, and how I say it beyond, you know, just the general care that teachers take when they're interacting with their students. Um, so all of our litigation are, 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 is on behalf of real Hoosiers who are being impacted by these laws, including our gender-affirming care. We have a number of families and, um, and kids and their parents who are um, uh, so, so concerned about um, that law. She spoke on the consequences of House Enrolled Act 1608 that prohibits teachers from providing instruction on human sexuality for grades K through 3. The consequences of that legislation and the legislation that inhibits the discussion of human sexuality um, at, at certain grade levels, the discussion of the legislation in other states that limits the discussion of race in classrooms, um, it not only um, targets specific speech, but it goes further by stifling and inhibiting all discussion. I mean, censorship in general, uh, as a tool of authoritarian governments, is intended to be have this um, chilling effect. And so for fear of running afoul of a vague law, like so many of these laws are, including our own um, teachers, uh, school administrators, uh, librarians, all are, um, are inhibited and play it safe. And um, the very definition of a vibrant democracy is the, the ability to not have to play it safe. You don't have to worry that government is going to... Um, judge your behavior as falling on the wrong side of certain um, uh, norms. And, uh, you know, so, much, so many of these laws are intended not only to have um, a targeted effect, but to have a blanket chilling effect that um, shuts down all kinds of discourse and, um, and, and you know, discourse by definition is what teachers want to encourage in their students, right? They want them to be curious. They want them to ask questions. So you can imagine if, if teachers don't want to even spurt a certain topic for fear of where a, a young person's uh, curious mind might go because then they'll have to stop the conversation or some parent might hear about that conversation and report that teacher um, you know, it's, it becomes this horrific um, police state that, uh, you know, we never believed was possible in, uh, in America. Henniger touched on the chilling effect the legislation has had. We, you know, we at the ACLU watch these uh, hateful laws come across our country like a wave, right? And... We know that some of these laws have been successfully opposed, both here and in other states. Some keep coming back again and again and again. Um, so we're always prepared for um, what might be um, on the horizon. We also know that um, 
when um, individuals, when Hoosiers, when voters tell their representatives that they want that they should stop uh, spending time, wasting time on hateful, divisive, unnecessary, to put it mildly, legislation, and instead focus on things that were really impacting and could improve people's lives in Indiana, that that um, works. So, you know, to the extent that people want um, the legislature to be done with censoring um, uh, what kids can learn, what teachers can say, what public libraries can put on their shelves, then they should tell their legislators that. Um, you know, one of the most powerful tools that each of us has is um, our ability to talk about these issues, share our opinions, and tell our elected officials that there will be a price to pay um, if they continue to pursue um, censorship and other hateful legislation. I mean, you know, censorship is like the most un-American thing imaginable. It's boggling um, to to me as an American um, and to us at the ACLU that we're having these discussions that Banned Book um, Month this year is attracting all the attention it is. I mean, it should be something that we look to other, and decades past in other countries or in our own, our own history about, you know, shameful past um, efforts and not and um, be in the unfortunate situation where we are now, where we're talking about um, why banning books is bad, why limiting speech is bad, why targeting um, individuals um, and, the, and, and their representation, their reflection and content is bad. And, you know, for those people who think that this legislative, these bills are are neutral and that it's all people's imagination, that it's um, targeted um, to certain communities. Just look at what are the books that are actually being challenged here in Indiana and across the country. Their books, a third of them are books that um, talk about race. Um, a third of them are, are books that talk about the LGBTQ community. And that, those statistics alone tell you what this is really about. Henniger spoke on how the legislation harms everyone, especially those that are being told that their stories are not acceptable to tell. I mean, silencing um, is an act of aggression. And when you target that silence to particular communities, the message that it sends, the message that it intends to send, is that those individuals, those communities, um, should be pushed out of the, the public life. Um, and in a democracy of our, like ours that um, claims to be the land of the free and to embrace equality for every, of every person, um, seeking to silence the stories of, of any one person or group is, um, is wrong. We particularly in America believe that government taking that action is particularly harmful. You know, we all have the freedom to choose what we read, what we watch, what we see, but when the government does it, 
then that um, turns our democracy into an authoritarian government. And, you know, so acts of censorship get to the fundamental um, tool that individuals in a democracy have to both govern their own lives, but govern their, their participate in self-government in their country, in their state, in their cities and towns, in their schools. Um, and so, you know, that our legal director often, Ken Falk often says, you know, there's a reason why the First Amendment is first, because without freedom of expression, freedom of speech, freedom of association, freedom of religion, we can't um, uh, work the levers of government that um, operate our country and keep us all free. And, you know, as far as the individual impact of those particular efforts um, over the last several years to censor is this pointed message of to people, targeted communities, that they should not be seen, they should not be heard, that they should not tell their stories. And, um, you know, you can imagine how harmful that is to people to be told, you know, you can't read a book that um, includes a family that looks like yours, um, that sends a signal that yours isn't a family when um, that's not true. Um, you know, you can't tell your stories lest somebody feel bad about um, past actions. You know, we as a country, as a people, should never shy away from the truth, should not never shy away from our own history. We should learn from it, and shame on us if we don't, if we don't know our history and if we don't learn from it. Um, you know, all of those things are harmful to all of us, but they fall particularly hard on um, targeted communities. Students spoke out against HEA 1608 during a school board meeting of the Monroe County Community School Corporation in August. A high school senior who asked to be identified as Possum took to the public mic to voice their concerns about the statewide policy. And today I'm going by the name Possum. Um, the day before the first day of school, I caught wind of HB 1608. At first I wondered if I should comply maliciously by changing my name every day, but immediately after having that thought, I realized the extra load that it would put on my teachers. I talked to others about it, and I realized the school board should be the ones um, fighting for us students. I shouldn't have to fight for the right to my name, nor should my teachers have to. By resisting this law, you not only have the chance to influence schools, you have the chance to influence the attitudes of youth in the greater community. You have the chance to influence my attitude as I graduate from the MCCSC system this next summer, and you have the chance to influence how the students younger than me will feel about the safety of the MCCSC community moving forward. You have the chance to take the lead in speaking for and representing us as a community. Thank you. In an interview with WFHB News, Dr. Jeff Hoswald, superintendent for MCCSC, described his initial reaction to House Enrolled Act 1608 when it passed. Individually, uh, I had grave concerns for the legislation, and I think that we voiced those. I know that we voiced them. Also, um, MCCSE is an organization. We actively engaged with our legislators and really were opposed to any bill that we believe has the direct or indirect effect of discriminating against uh, our students. 
personally, I see this as uh, Trojan horse legislation. I know we've used that phrase before, and I know that um, the bill changed over time, um, and some of the language became less specifically geared towards our LGBTQIA plus population. And we believe that was because there were some constitutional concerns with the draft legislation. And so, again, I call it a Trojan horse legislation because we believe, and I think the majority of people would agree, um, that this uh, legislation is is really designed to target a lot of our LGBTQIA plus um, students. And so um, we have not supported it. With that being said, we are fully complying with the law and uh, really also then, in addition to complying with law, making sure that we're providing the services and support for students that might be impacted because of this irresponsible legislation. Hoswald said that while he disagrees with the legislation, MCCSC has remained compliant with the law. He explained what compliance looks like for HEA 1608. In order to be compliant, MCCSC has to uh, report to one parent or family member, could be a parent or guardian, if a student has shared their, their request related to pronouns, gender, names, and we're, we're required to report that. So um, we have a process in place for that. And so if a, if a student does that, and this is a forward-looking law we consider, so if a student um, requests to have a different name, different pronoun, um, we have a process. A staff member reports that to the principal, and then we document that, and the principal uh, notifies the, 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 the parent and guardian. MCCSE is not requiring parent permission in order to change a pronoun or a name, for example. Um, we simply are following the letter of the law. In our letter, we also made sure that our letter is a very affirming in the sense that while we're complying with the law, our focus is on providing the, the support to the students. And basically, we, we tried to write the letter in a way that it not only complies with the law, but it provides uh, acknowledgement and in, in our support for students. In the letter MCCSC sent out notifying parents about the new law, the school corporation emphasized its commitment to providing, quote, a safe, respectful, and inclusive learning environment in which student diversity and identities are celebrated, end quote. He elaborated on other ways he believes the school corporation showed support for its LGBTQ plus students, namely by passing an ordinance that all students are accepted and should be free from discrimination. The other thing that we did, I think, outwardly to show support for um, students that might have been negatively impacted was to pass uh, Resolution 2023-07. This really speaks collectively to our Board of School Trustees' desire uh, that it passed unanimously. And part of that says all students are diverse and unique. When students are empowered, self-esteem grows. All students' experiences and perspectives are assets that reflect the strength of our school and the values of our community. Such assets, when respected, nurtured, and explored, promote their academic success and the success of their peers. Um, there's other components of that, but I think that kind of speaks to our collective statement that we issued to our students to let them know just how supportive we are. And the other piece of the legislation you asked about was the, some restrictions. Um, and while we generally don't believe that we had um, those, that type of instruction at that level, we are, uh, of course, making sure um, and communicating that those types of conversations are not legally allowed in um, pre-K to um, grade three. 
So those are the two components of of that legislation. You know, I know that a lot of our students, um, we've been available. We we continue to make sure that we provide support to our students. And so that's counselors, that's social workers, that's a, a trusted advisor for students that have questions, they want someone to talk to. And we are making sure that we're providing support. I know I talk to students oftentimes who are concerned with what they, many students have called it the quote, slate of hate, end quote. And you know, we're making sure that our schools are inclusive and embrace and they embrace all students and they're supportive. And we see that in our high school cultures and all of our schools, really. In his view, Hoswald said that education policy should be determined at the local level rather than at the state house. Moreover, he said laws such as HEA 1608 put an unnecessary burden on parents, teachers, and students. You know, we constantly advocate for local control and allowing our local communities to set the rules, guidelines, policies, and practices that are best for their community. Um, so one of the reasons we, we really firmly oppose this was for that simple, the simple reality that we don't believe our state legislature can best set these types of expectations and rules. You know, there are, there are ways by which we engage with our, our, our families, our parents, our guardians, and we believe that should be a, a collaborative uh, method through two-way communication that provides support for individual students. But that support should be based on individual students and their needs and what the parents are asking for services and, and, and what we believe is, is needed to help every individual student succeed. And so anytime um, we paint with a broad brush, and a lot of this legislation does, right, it creates unnecessary burdens on, on students and families and on, on, on schools. So if you imagine this law now, anytime a student requests a change of name that isn't documented or, or entered into our um, a student data system by parents, we have to send letters. So we started the year with a lot of notifications for name changes that, that may not have been for um, the reasons that our legislators stated, but somebody simply, you know, um, that, you know, Matthew John, who now is going by John instead of Matthew, those types of things also received uh, letters if they had not previously been called or requested that name or if the parent had approved it. So that led to, if you think about that, there's just a lot of unnecessary administrative work. We spoke with a Monroe County school teacher about how the new legislation has affected them and their students. The teacher, who wishes to remain anonymous, shared that the new legislation that requires schools to notify parents or guardians in writing when their child requests to change their name, title, pronouns, or other identifying terms made the first day of school feel colder and impersonal. The teacher walked us through what the first day of school was like for them and their colleagues, saying, quote, This year it felt very cold and sterile. You would start out by saying something like, Hey, I'm going to be calling your name as it appears on my roster. If I mispronounce your name, please correct me. And that's kind of where I chose to stop, because going much farther than that, it starts to feel like you're asking them what their preferred name is. And you have to understand that I would say 80% of the teachers in my building had a get-to-know-you activity, and one of the first questions would be, what are your chosen pronouns? What name would you like to go by? And so all of those have changed. I would say that I'm speaking on behalf of a lot of my colleagues. It just felt like we almost lost the right to have these positive relationships but we're not allowed to do the most basic things and ask a person what they like to be called. I think that our school has handled it as well as it could. It just was awful. We call the student the same thing for three years in a row. Now, all of a sudden, we have to do something different. 
And so as a teacher, you had to turn any of these anomalies over to the administration. And then, like I said, they handled it with the appropriate people, and then they would decide whether home was going to be contacted or not, you know? But what a high-stress situation for a kid that feels safe at school but not at home, taking away that place. And that would be the larger statewide argument that we need to have, you know. I get that a parent wants to know what's going on with their child's life. But if you don't know what your kid wants to be called, then you probably have some bigger problems at home. The teacher shared that they were supposed to read a statement to their homeroom students to explain the new pronoun law. We were supposed to read something out loud at some point to our homeroom group so that everybody heard that it was a new state law. And so I think that the kids had an understanding that the teachers were in a really hard spot. And so in that regard, I was glad as a teacher to know that the kids understood that our hands were sort of tied, but it didn't make anything less sad. And I think that one of the things I love about our school district is they do strive to be really inclusive and try to be a safe place for marginalized groups. And I think that there's an effort on a lot of different levels to make that happen. The teacher shared that teachers are upset that the power seems to have shifted to the parents, away from the teachers, who are the professionals. To them, it feels like there is a lack of respect for teachers in Indiana, saying, quote, What a weird time. And I think if I were going to say what teachers would really like to see happen is just more transparency, because we have all these people around us talking about education and making all these big decisions, but none of them are in the classroom. And so I think all teachers really want is transparency, and we want to be heard. I mean, we're the professionals in the classroom doing this every day. We're the ones who know what works and what doesn't work, and all these decisions are being made without input, and it's just frustrating. I think we feel not heard. I think we feel not respected. I don't know if you remember, but I remember a time when it was like you get in trouble, and whatever the teacher says is kind of what happened, and they were respected. It feels to me like there has just been a big power shift. It's like the parents are in control. They hold the keys of the car and the administration and then probably students and then the teachers are just at the bottom of the pile. The teachers share that they are disappointed teachers feel as though they have to walk on eggshells, censor their libraries, call their students by the wrong names, and that they are worried they could get fired if they don't. The teacher said that they don't want to get fired because they value the work they do, saying, quote, It's sad that we're worried about stuff like this especially considering that it's not even a really high-paid job. It's not like I have a lot to lose. There's a lot of other jobs where you can get paid the same, you know? And so I try to be comfortable with that fact. But I don't know. It's more than money to me. I value what I do. I feel good a lot of days when I come home because you know you are making an impact. That's why a lot of people do it, if not for the money. The Monroe County teacher explained that a lot of teachers are overwhelmed and dispirited by the new legislation. They feel like they don't have a voice. The teacher shared that a lot of the teachers have quit or retired due to the new laws. Beth Clausen, the mother of a 10-year-old transgender daughter, lobbied without success against the gender-affirming care ban that was passed this year. Clausen said that this legislation took an emotional toll on her family. I mean, it's something that we wanted to do and we felt that we had to do. It's the second year that we have spoke. We also spoke last year against the uh, sports bill, the ban on trans girls in sports. So... We knew what we were getting into. This year was very intense. You know, it took us away from our jobs. We had to rely on other people to help us, like, get our kids to school and get them ready so that we could be there to testify. And it just, it was an emotional toll. Clausen commented on HEA 1608, saying that she worries this policy risks students being outed to their parents, even if their parents don't support their identity. I worry my teenage 
children have friends who are uh, trans and they have families that are not who are not accepting and i i really worry um and the only place those kids can be themselves is at school and that's getting taken away from them clausen's daughter just started the fifth grade clausen says that she fears more harmful policies will be passed during the next legislative session she said in an interview with the limestone post magazine quote as a family we worked so hard to create a community that we love and that loves us we don't want legislators pushing us out or pushing anyone out. That said, if it ever becomes impossible for us to provide the care that our daughter needs, we will leave in a heartbeat, end quote. That concludes our coverage on Indiana's education legislation. To read the full article written by Steve Hennefeld and photography by Garrett Ann Walters, visit limestonepostmagazine.com. Stay tuned for our next series on the Charles C. Deem Wilderness Area. To submit feedback or provide any tips for our next series, you can email deepdive at wfhb.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 802-552-3483.